Welcome to Sci-Fi with Jesse Mercury. I am your titular host, and this week I have a very special guest, Asher Mendel. Asher is an old friend from San Diego. Uh, we haven't seen each other in quite a while. He is in Seattle visiting with his girlfriend, and he uh, he hit me up online and said, hey, while I'm in town, can we hang out? And also, can I be on your podcast? And the answer was yes and yes. It was very exciting to see Asher. It was also very exciting to have someone ask if they could be on the podcast. Usually, I'm like hounding people down like, hey, you, be on my podcast. Come talk to me about science fiction for five hours at a time. Uh, we had an amazing time, amazing chat. I'm going to bring you the first half of that chat this week, and the second half will come up next week. I also have a very special surprise at the end of this episode. Uh, I wrote a new song last night for the sci-fi album. I'm going to play it for you at the end, and I'll tell you all about it. Uh, quick catch up on what's happening this week in my exciting creative life. Uh, I've talked about the video for Be Cool that just came out uh, last Thursday, I believe, with Kenzie and Chloe from Super Famous, who were on the podcast a couple weeks ago. The video came out and it is awesome. It's getting some really great response. People are really enjoying it. And I'm not just saying that because I'm in it. I'm saying that because it's, uh, well, it's because I'm in it. It's fucking awesome. Go check it out. Be cool. Look up super famous, be cool online and just look for my, uh, my, my beautiful face with a crazy spacesuit on. Uh, and that's the one and you got to watch it. Share it with everyone you've ever met in your entire life, please. My birthday's coming up on Friday. I keep telling people all I want for my birthday is to be a YouTube sensation. So help me make that happen. Something else that's super exciting that's happening this week on Saturday the EMP, the Experience Music Project here in Seattle, uh, is having a closing party for their Star Wars exhibit. They've had some costumes from Star Wars on exhibit for a while. It's called The Party Strikes Back, and I'm going to be the host. So excited about this. It's going to be a great time. I'm emceeing a Star Wars party. God damn, that's cool. It's going to be awesome. Uh, so come on, wear a costume. Come to the EMP on Saturday, the 26th, to check out the, uh, the party. The Party Strikes Back. Okay, we're going to get into this conversation with Asher. He and I talked about a lot of stuff. Uh, we, we tended to focus on something that we've talked about on the show before, this idea of who you're creating content for when you're you know, doing a sequel or a prequel or uh, a reboot or whatever it is. Are we making content to make money? Are we making content for the fans? Are we making content to create new fans? Uh, we talked a lot about that, a lot of Star Wars talk, uh, some Jurassic Park talk. And it's it's a really great conversation. Asher's a wonderful person to talk to. So we're going to jump into that, and here we go. So, Asher, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. It's very exciting to have you. You were the first person who's ever asked to be on the podcast, which I just want to go on record and saying how exciting that was for me. <laughs> oh, well, I'm pleased to put a feather in your cap. Yeah. Uh, you live in San Diego. We know each other from the olden days. That is correct. And you are visiting Seattle, and you're here, and this is awesome. This is a great use of your time. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Love yeah. coming up to Seattle. Love the Northwest. Um, I always thought about moving up here, uh, on again, off again, but... Uh, you know, at the very least, I can still put my toes in the water on the uh, conjugal visits and all of that. <laughs> yeah, I like the idea that visiting Seattle is like, is basically just fucking because it's so beautiful up here. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's yeah. definitely its own form of fucking. Yeah. And you were saying you went to Mount Rainier yesterday? Yes. Uh, my girlfriend and I were, were in town, are in town for uh, the next couple of days. Uh, we rented a car for a visit and Drove out to Rainier, and uh, it's really awesome, really beautiful. Recommend it. Um, it's, I think my understanding is that it's the least populous of the three national parks that are day-trippable from the Seattle metro between huh. Olympic, North Cascades, and Mount Rainier. It's the closest, least populous, and, um, you know, on a Monday past Labor Day, you know, there was practically no one there. Wow, that's cool. And you said uh, it was like being on alien landscape. I haven't been there before. Uh, I highly recommend it. Um, so basically, and my geology and naturalism is going to be a little bit spotty because this is all just based on information that I've skimmed. But when you're reaching higher elevations, you basically ascend past the tree line 
and only a certain amount of vegetation can be sustained at certain temperatures and altitudes. Yeah. And so you encounter a lot of Arctic tundra-esque landscape where it's just kind of very mossy, low vegetation lichen and L-I-C-H-E-N lichen, yeah. not likening something to you. Right. <laughs> and you have the, I guess it's an element of the Cascade Range, which are all a series of volcanic mountains. Uh, fortunately, the last time Rainier has gone off was sometime maybe two centuries ago. Yeah. But you have, it's basically kind of this moonscapey, dark gray rock that you're traversing for a good portion of the time that you're ascending. And even when you're at the lowland base of the mountain as well, um, where you have a, a greater amount of vegetation and pines and Douglas firs and all of that, you still have quite a bit of this very gray soil. It's unlike anything I've ever seen. And I huh. would assume it's attributed to Rainier and other mountains in the area being a volcanic range, being forged in fire and ice wow. and all of that. So it's... Cool. How high did you go? Um, yesterday was fairly mild in terms of high elevation. Um, I think I was only at about 7,000 above sea level, which for the uninitiated is still a lot. And it is a lot. And it'll certainly knock you on your butt if you're not prepared for it. Um, but the summit of Rainier itself is 14,000. Oh, and, wow. And um, my dad actually uh, paid to go on an expedition that actually takes you to the top as well back in 1998, I think, when there was arguably more snow and glacier pack there. Uh, wow. Uh, thank you very much, human activities. <laughs> this is all like well outside my realm of expertise. Like I've... Um, I don't have a car. I haven't left the city since I moved to Seattle. I'm just like always here. Like when I do outdoorsy activities, it's when I go visit my sister and her fiance in Portland. And we, we went mountain biking and that was amazing. I'm like, I should do this all the time. This is incredible. I think there's a lot for it actually. Um, yeah. And, you know, certainly I grew up in suburbia and a bulk of my adolescent and adult life was spent indoors, you know, playing yeah. music, playing video games, you know, just hanging out at pizza shops, record stores, coffee shops, you know, general kind of city slicker kind of stuff. That's my language. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, and it's a great language to speak. Yeah. Um, but I had this experience a couple of years back. And I also, much like you, I had a sibling who lived in Portland and a bulk of my experience with the outdoors was through him. When I'd go to visit, you know, we'd do like a day hike or something or go to Cannon Beach or Astoria or the coast or something like that. Yeah. So a couple of years back, um, and I'm going to preface this story by saying that it was all completely my fault. <laughs> um, but basically I was in, uh, I was riding my bicycle in San Diego um, and I was in an auto accident and we uh, met 90 degrees in the intersection. Wow. And uh, I flipped over their hood and had a very painful hip contusion. Oh my God. Um, and long story short, in the end, I'm right here, healthy, fully capable with all of my physical faculties. Um, but I remember, you know, basically colliding with this vehicle and it was the sharpest amount of pain I ever experienced. I get smashed in the side of my oh hip. My God. I flip over the hood. There's broken glass, you know, land on both hands with just a palms full of it. And I'm writhing in pain and adrenaline's coursing through my system and I'm in complete shock. I have no idea what's wrong with my person. All I know is that I'm in the worst kind of physical pain I've ever experienced. And I'm sitting there and feeling like a real idiot because I think I was just trying to get to a movie and pedaling really hard and I was listening to music at night and I very well may have run a red light. So that's what I mean by it was all my fault. But, but I mean, who knows? It very well may not have been your fault. Who knows? All I know is that, uh, you know, but, according to insurance records, it was my fault. Oh, bummer. I mean, no matter what, it still happened and that sucks. It does suck. And I don't recommend it to anyone. <laughs> but as I was there on the ground, um, I remember lying there in the worst pain I ever had. Not sure if I was going to lose some kind of physical faculty, you know, paraplegia. Yeah. You know, is this the end? Am I actually like going to be you know, will this be a loss of capability or something much wow. worse? And I was thinking there, you know, you shithead, you fucking idiot. Like, what are you doing getting yourself in this kind of trouble? And I thought, well, you know, if this is the end, I really wish I spent more time outside. You know, I really, really I, yes, absolutely. Wow. And this isn't like a, my life flash before my eyes kind of 
you know, I'm not trying to evoke any kind of hokey cliche element of, you know, what we experience in moments of crisis, but essentially all my only thought in that moment, other than lamenting the immediate event that had occurred was, I wish I spent more time outside. I wish I was outdoors more. I wish I just experienced the natural world in oh, its pure man. state. That's beautiful and amazing. It's so funny because I've had a, well, not, not a similar incident, but a similar moment where I thought that like my my life with my faculties might be over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and my thought was, well, first thought, thank God I just finished my album. And second thought, like I should have made more music. Um, and I, it's interesting, like those clarifying moments that show you who you are mm-hmm. and like what is important to you. And I think it, maybe it brings out the thing that you connect to the most that is beautiful. Like the, your connection to beauty is like, I should have spent more time with my connection to to natural beauty. And for me, that's the, the, like the songwriting experience. And for you, it's like that moment where you're like on Mount Rainier and you look out and you're like, this is incredible. And, um, which is, an, which is an amazing moment. That's something I, I should do more of, but that's really, that's beautiful. That's a really cool story. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk about how we know each other. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> do you remember how we met? Cause I do very vividly. Um, I remember the first time we hung out in person. Do you know why? Do you I, remember why we met? I remember. I, guess, I remember why. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and this is a great, uh, great moment. I think in the program to shift gears. Let's do it. Um, we we met through a rap battle. <laughs> I don't know if it was a battle, but I remember um, doing like a very. Uh, <laughs> it was a very rough home recording that I had made of myself rapping over a section of a Daft Punk song off of Discovery. Yeah. The Short Circuit track. That's right. Short Circuit, that was it. Um, which has like a very break in, you know, <laughs> you know, breakbeat element too. And it, it like, you know, it very much, you know, just evokes a sense, a nostalgic sense of, you know, you know, 80s-esque kind of, you know, kind of tough talk rapping. So you're, you're good friends with, uh, with my friend Brandon Sullivan, who was the drummer in my band at the time in San Diego. And he calls me up. He says, I'm doing this rap battle with this guy, Asher, and I need to record it really well. Can I come to your studio and record it? (laughs) I'm like, "Uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, and I, you know, you and I are both like, you know. Excellent MCs. (laughs) We're both like white Jewish kids from the suburbs, you know, like hip hop was well outside my realm of experience at this point. And it, it was at the beginning of having a studio. I ended up working on a lot of hip hop albums and discovering a real appreciation and understanding well, I mean, a, lim- uh, a real appreciation of the genre and a limited understanding based off of what I uh, was introduced to through my clients and friends that came through my studio. Sure. But at this point, I had no fucking idea what I was doing. And then uh, Brandon wanted to come over and record, and he just laid down this, like, sweet rap. It was, like, really good, and I was <laughs> kind of surprised. Um, I didn't know he had it in him, and I hadn't even heard yours at this point, and I didn't know who you were. <laughs> All I knew is that he wanted to do something to battle you with, um, <laughs> I never, uh, perceived that, uh, collaboration as a battle. It's funny that you put it that way, but I oh, remember he did. <laughs> well, it shows because I remember <laughs> hearing it for the first time and thinking how vicious his verse was. It was vicious. Yeah. <laughs> Sid vicious. <laughs> it was intense. Asher, Asher will smash, Asher will smash her while he's wearing his yarmulke. He'll hit it eight times. Like, like he, he celebrates, celebrates Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Uh, what was next? Um, Put on a helmet before he blows your mind. Get your teeth off my jock. You know that ain't kind. <laughs> it's, pretty, you, it's pretty vicious. When you see this slim frame, you'll want to know my name. Five, eight, a buck, 30. I got nothing but game. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. And this is from like a bunch of, of just like nerdy white boys who have no idea what they're talking about. I mean, we were clearly playing in an away game on those recordings. <laughs> this is the perfect way to put it. But then, then I, so we'd done this whole thing. Like me and Brandon had recorded our stuff you'd recorded yours yes we put it all together and we uh-huh. had a track that we, that we didn't show anyone because it was just for us i mean i know i played it a lot at you know some of the venues i worked at just oh, you know, really yeah <laughs> as like you know a system tuning song not like open house song really yeah that's awesome i've worked at community centers it was a very inappropriate song for open house <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then we and then we met and i don't actually remember i remember uh like Brandon, we just hung out with Brandon. He introduced us and was like, this is the guy that you, you rap battled with. And I was like, oh, that's right. Yeah. And I think I, you were living in San Diego then. Yeah. And we uh, came to your studio at the time where you were living. 
And I know, I think we re-recorded some of my stuff because I recall when I recorded my part originally, it was through like a Skype headset and Uh it was very, uh, it was really ahead of its time with the lo-fi aesthetic. (laughs) Um, But yeah, we re-recorded everything. And then for like a hot minute, we also jammed as like a, we did, yeah, as a, as a quote unquote band. Um, It was after Laura had moved away because I had this band with Brandon, Dan and Laura as Jesse Plaque, my my real name, not my stage name. Uh, <laughs> it's an important distinction to make. Yeah. I've gone through this like personal transition and now I feel like I am Jesse Mercury and it's not just like a stage name anymore. And but and it's weird to like talk about my old stuff and with my old name. It's weird. Is it kind of like uh hanging out with Superman and like he lets his guard down a little bit in the middle of some, you know, major intergalactic conflict and he's like, you know, a lot of people think I'm Clark. <laughs> Um, I'm going to go with no, because I am nowhere near as cool as Superman. (laughs) Maybe to flip it though, you know, maybe it's like being Chewbacca and you're in like some deep shit situation with Han. And this is like an undocumented part of any of the Star Wars original trilogy, but you know, there you are, you know, you're bow casting and just getting through it and getting it done. And then, you know, you're like, you know what? Sometimes I wish... Han just kind of left me be a Wookiee slave. I'm not really cut out for this, like, you know, <laughs> vine swinging into an ATST. I'd rather just, you know. <laughs> yeah. Why does he scream like Tarzan at that moment? That's always bothered me. Um, you know, I think it's low hanging fruit as far as an audio gag goes. Ugh. Um, you Ugh. know, and, you know, Chewbacca is one of the most endearing characters in the movie. I think even though a lot of Return of the Jedi detractors, you know, will really beat on the film for a lot of its easier gags and, you know, Ewok-inspired kind of stuff. You know, to their credit, they're really going for broke with that Tarzan yodel. And they're saying, like, we're making the cheesiest movie out of the original series right now, and this is either going to work or people are not going to like it as much as Empire or New Hope, but we're keeping our foot on the gas with this. And you know what? To Chewie's credit, he really saves the day at Endor. Yeah. The movie does work. I mean... Say what you will about Return of the Jedi. It's a great movie. And I, I watched it again recently. I watched the despecialized edition recently. The non-men in black version? Yeah. Have you seen, have you heard about the despecialization project? No, but I think it's probably very important work. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they, this guy named Harmy, that's his internet handle, he spearheaded this thing it's like where they kind of crowdsourced high quality uh, work to return the special edition to the original theatrical cut on Blu-ray. Okay. So the main source was the special edition Blu-ray, and then they uh, used computer effects to remove computer effects. Wow. And like put original matte paintings back in, uh, like high-res versions of original matte paintings. Like they take stills from the original theatrical cut if they could find it. Uh, and they had a bunch of different sources for the original theatrical cut, one of them being the DVD release the one time they released the original on DVD, and it wasn't a very high-quality release. But they basically created uh, an HD Blu-ray version of the original trilogy, and it's wonderful. Okay. Well, well, my biggest questions then would be, number one, with Jabba's Palace, because the original film is uh, the Max Rebo band with Snice Noodles and Droopy McCool. Yes. Is that scene back in? Yes. Great. And then we're not seeing Hayden Christensen be all ghostwriter at the end. We are not. Correct. Correct. So great it's, work. It's great, great work. It's wonderful stuff. But did you hear the rumor now that uh, they just announced this week that Disney is planning to re-release the original trilogy theatrical cuts on no, Blu-ray for real? No, I haven't been following that news. But um, you know, good for Disney. Not yeah. entirely surprising. I think it's a smart business move on their end. Yeah. Um, I think just if I can take a moment to kind of lay down my own take opinion. It. Yeah, go. So it's no secret amongst uh, you know purist and diehard fans of. Star Wars, the original trilogy franchise, and maybe some of its auxiliary canon via Dark Horse comics, um, that, you know, we've basically been duped and manipulated many times, (laughs) you know, via guys like Steve Sansweet, the vice president of fan relations with Lucasfilm. I don't know if he's still there, but I've seen him speak at Comic-Con many times in San Diego, and uh, I'm not trying to start any beef right now, but um, (laughs) let's just say I'm not trying to buy, you know, specialized editions that feature all kinds of revisionist history in the original trilogy film. I just want what I liked about it in the first place. And so saying we're not going to have a Blu-ray of this or we're not going to do like an original cut, you know, you wind up buying a bunch of stuff with a bunch of additional crap on there that you never wanted to watch in the first place. 
And next thing you know, you're in, you know, a couple hundred dollars after, you know, Lucasfilm saying we're not going to do the original release. And now Disney, which I don't care at this point. I mean, you know, they're the top of the entertainment game for a reason at this point. Yeah. And, you know, I can't imagine these new movies being any worse than the last three movies that we saw. It's probably physically impossible for them to be worse. It's going to take like a real four horsemen of the apocalypse situation (laughs) in order for these movies to be worse than the prequels. And, you know, I uh, didn't even start watching Star Trek at all, really, until I saw the Abrams reboots. And that event, yeah, and that eventually kind of motivated me to get start watching and get into TNG, which is great. Yeah, which didn't even begin until like, you know, I hit my 30s. And I'm 33 right now. I started watching when I was 30. And I think I'm just starting season six right now. Wow. So it's been like a real on again, off again project. But the only point I'm trying to make is that, you know, if Abrams basically kind of got me excited about Star Trek and then kind of seduced me into their back catalog where like all the real stuff's kind of at, real, quote unquote, real, you know, where the purists would argue you got to start and check out. Then I think, you know, there's no reason why, and I don't know if he's just doing episode seven, but there's no reason why, you know, that movie isn't going to be good and entertaining and like a good, solid B-grade science fiction film. Yeah. Whether or not, you know, and really that's the mantle of the challenge with these three new movies is that can you get an Empire Strikes Back caliber film in the next three. Can you tell a story that's compelling enough on that level? Because outside of a major catastrophe, we're not going to get anything worse than episodes one, two, and three. But can seven, eight, and nine be contending in the same conversation as four, five, and six? Yeah. Uh, You're right. I mean, absolutely. That's, I think that the bar has been lowered substantially. Uh, The bar that existed for episode one was so high Mm -hmm. because the last thing we'd seen was Return of the Jedi. And now people are so jaded about loving Star Wars because we've been burned so deeply yes. and like cut so intensely painfully <laughs> that uh, all that Seven has to do is be uh, be decent to, right. to be great, which is kind of a funny thing just like in movies in general. I, f- I feel like Jurassic World, which I loved, all it had to do was not suck um, to be great because – to, to not suck inside of a framework of that kind of pressure is so hard. And that movie didn't suck at all. I mean, that movie was great. Like, I, I thought they did a really good job. It was fun. It was entertaining. It had, uh, it, it was fan service without being heavy-handed. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you see it? I have seen Jurassic World, and I have seen all the Star Wars prequels. And I have a couple ideas, if you'll Yeah, hit me. me. Yeah. Um. So I'll start with Star Wars and then kind of move on to Jurassic World because that's kind of more of a postscript for me. But with Star Wars episodes one, two, and three, episode one in particular, I like to analogize that to the Weezer experience because (laughs) Weezer released, you know, a couple of good albums in the 90s, you know, Pinkerton being especially great in my opinion. And then they went on hiatus or had like a pseudo breakup and then they're coming back and then, oh my God, this is so exciting and they're playing shows again and they're touring and oh shit, they're going to release a new album. And to me, I think listening to the Green Album for the first few times and watching Phantom Menace the first few times, (laughs) those are interchangeable experiences based on the expectation, the excitement the internalized stakes of the framework of both of those franchises, if you want to call a band a franchise. I haven't listened to whatever very recent album they have where some reputable friends of mine suggest that 50% of the album is actually, you know, capital L listenable and maybe even capital G good. (laughs) But, you know, it's at this point now where Weezer's released, what, five albums, however many albums, you know, a considerable multitude of albums more in their 2000s and 2010s career than they did in the 90s. And, you know, I'm going to just be a real jerk here and say that all their listenable work is in the 90s. And you get burned by two or three albums of like Weezer reunion excitement and it's constant disappointment. And I know Rivers has his own like thing in his head about what Pinkerton did to him in terms of critical backlash and like, you know, commercial disappointment and him putting it all on the line and basically being rejected in the artist as an artist, you know, kind of at the height of his own creative powers in that moment. And I can't assume what that does to a person on a mental or psychological level. And maybe you are a little vindictive to write stuff that is kind of, well, here's a bunch of poppy stuff. Fuck you. You know, you'll never 
it never, never appreciated me as an artist at the time. So, which he has said. I mean, that's when I stopped listening to Weezer's. When not not those exact words, but I used to read Rolling Stone, and there was an interview where he said that he'd cracked the code to pop music, where yeah. he could basically just put in like a formula and come out with a pop song and it'd be a hit. And I was like, well, then I'm done with Weezer because I don't want to hear that. Absolutely, and um, you know, I think a lot of that is just him being vindictive over the experience of Pinkerton. I think that's yeah. kind of interesting. I never put it in those terms. Yeah, and who's to say? I mean, if any one of us came up with some real creative gold and then just it was shit on by everyone, even if you get this like real cult revival vibe to it, I mean, that's not everyone would rebound from it yeah. as easily as others. And so in a lot of ways, Rivers kind of went Anakin on us in that whole <laughs> in that whole timeline. Yeah. So um, I'm not sure where I was going with that originally. But, but I you think- were going to compare it to episode one. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah. And so the bar was set so high for post-Pinkerton reunion Weezer that anything less than like a true Pinkerton follow-up was going to be a colossal disappointment. Yeah. And it wasn't just that they didn't give us like something that was even in the same orbit as Pinkerton, but it was so intentionally away from it that you can't help but feel upset and rejected as a fan. Now, Wh- Which album is the Green Album? What's on it? I- I'll know the singles. Hashpipe and Island in the Sun okay, were like the singles off that one. That's the one I thought it was. The, the 2001 release, and it's probably most famously known by fans who were like of our age at the time as being the one that only had guitar solos that uh, replicated the vocal melody. Mm. And, you know, it came in at like right under 30 minutes for 10 songs and like, you know. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not super uh, familiar with Weezer. I, I listened to the Blue Album a ton. Um, I've never even heard Pinkerton all the way through. Well, you might not want to broadcast that part because it, <laughs> a lot of your listeners may yeah. come at you. But um, just constructive advice, you ought to give it a listen. I yeah. Mean, I mean, I there's so much content out in the universe that like everyone I've had on the show, there's always someone who's like, oh, I haven't seen that or I haven't heard that. Or it's me who hasn't seen or heard sure. that. And, uh, you know, I I like the idea that it's like a crime to not be exposed to something I think is, is something that we should move away from as, as like a fan dumb. Certainly. Because there's, it, there's only so much time in the day, you know? Absolutely. And I know I've certainly alienated a lot of potential friends on my end by just being so hard line about you're about, you haven't done or listened or seen X, Y, or Z. Well then yeah. you have no business even knowing me right now. Right. <laughs> Which is like a really, you know, fun stance to keep when you're like a kid and you think you're breathing fire and all of that. But yeah. you know, you're but not you, making any friends in the process. You know what it does to me is that I hear weeds them out. Well, it, no, no, no. It makes me not want to listen to the thing because when I hear from someone, uh, like Weezer is, has like lost everything that made them good. And like, I don't, like now it's really upsetting to listen to. I'm like, well, then I don't want to get into the old stuff because then I'll be disappointed. And right now I'm not disappointed because I don't care because I don't know it, you know? So I'll try to avoid the disappointment that I experienced from Star Wars Episode One by not listening to Pinkerton. <laughs> well, I mean, I wouldn't quite put it in those terms, but definitely give Pinkerton a listen because yeah. I think it's great. And, you know, a lot of other people would agree with that. And, and I've heard that from everyone that I know who's listened to it. Sure. Including my like my bandmates in Mugatu who are just all about it. Dan Dan DeRozier, uh, the drummer from Mugatu, is obsessed with Weezer. And he played us the new Weezer album. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was like okay, but he was so excited that it was listenable, like you said, with the capital L. Right. He was so excited that he liked anything on it because it was like getting his friend back. You know, it's like a friend had died and had come back to life. Well, I uh, can't, I, I don't know this gentleman of whom you speak, and I certainly have not had an experience like that listening to a band. Yeah. But, um, you know, when you have the bar set so high, anything less than intentional replication of the critical content of its predecessors is going to be viewed as, at best, a huge insult to the fan, rela- fan relations, and at worst, like just a major fuck you to any kind of interest yeah. to pursue it to begin with. So that's like the Weezer Green Album experience from Pinkerton, and that's the Star Wars experience from original trilogy to Phantom Menace, which arguably is the worst of the prequel franchise anyway, in my opinion. Yeah. And this is so interesting to me. This is something with it, this topic is something that we've talked about a lot that I'm really, that we have not come to a conclusion yet on, that I'm really interested in the idea of uh, creating content for the public versus for yourself or like the intention behind the content you're creating mm-hmm. where it seems like with Weezer, his intention, uh, you know, Rivers Cuomo's intention with the Green Album was maybe to make something that would be more commercially well-received because he'd been burned. Right. Uh, 
George Lucas created the most successful thing that's ever been made with the original Star Wars trilogy. And like, his intention with the new trilogy, um, having you know just recorded sci-fi on trial and like really dug into episode one with some people, I we kind of came to the conclusion that he was trying to change the game in the way that he had with the original trilogy. He was less, maybe less concerned about making a good movie or making a, a good story and more concerned with like changing filmmaking and showing the next wave of what filmmaking would be because he'd already done that. And can you imagine the pressure of feeling that? Because that's the only explanation I can think of that explains why these movies are so wildly different. Uh, the tone is so different that maybe he was trying to uh, like usher in a new era of digital filmmaking. What do you think? Interesting question. Um, I look at it kind of differently, but I would agree that the pressure is so high on both parties to really deliver. That how, how do you look of, at it? Um, well, I look at the prequels, and I think the most compelling potential story that you have there is Anakin Skywalker and yeah. what moved him to Vader. And honestly, I don't know how you legitimately tell that story in all of its grim detail without it being a rated R story. And I'm not saying like you need to have like you know all sorts of graphic mutilation scenes or, you know, vicious stuff that just kind of scars you as a person on screen. But this is a dark story. This is about someone forsaking everything that he held dear and basically embracing evil. That's not a PG story. Yeah. And I know that there's a lot of commercial constituencies that have a lot of say when you're making films at that level. I've never made a Star Wars. I have never <laughs> recorded a Pinkerton. I have a lot of crisp, finely owned critical ideas that are informed by my opinion about what those things should be as a music listener and a movie viewer. But I can't speak to the pressure of performing, distributing, and succeeding on a level that high. Yeah. But I can say is that if you're going to make art in its purest form and truest to its own endemic detail, you need to really embrace what that means. And if you're trying to make a widely commercially successful film, you're going to have to make some critically and artistically compromising choices. And I think if you're trying to make a high-grossing film, George Lucas did great with Star Wars 1, 2, and 3. But I think if you're going to satiate the real meat of the story, the real tofu of the story, I'm not trying to be <laughs> like, you know, however you get your protein. Um you know, if you're really going to satiate what that is and what that means, because I love Star Wars. Yeah. And I just don't like, and this isn't about like, oh, I really love X-Wings. You know, I really appreciate the mythology of one, two, and three. Excuse me. Uh, original trilogy, one, two, and three. Mm -hmm. Episodes four, five, and six. So if you're going to make something true to form with the prequels and telling why Anakin did what he did and what moved him there and what motivates and informs that behavior... That's a dark story. You can't market that to kids. Yeah. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, we're never going to get that. Yeah. So having said that, let's talk about Jurassic Park. Yeah. yeah let me add some of that really fast. Uh, I went to um, grab breakfast and coffee this morning with my friend Sarah, who's in town. One of my absolute favorite people. Everybody's in town this week. So tight. Yeah. <laughs> Just like socially tight. Yeah. Um, and... I had, we were discussing like the recording of sci-fi on trial that we just did. She wasn't there for that, but uh, I was just telling her about how it went because it was so fucking rad. And she was talking about her, um, her nephews who are, I think six years old, she said, who are super into Star Wars, super, super into Star Wars. And she was telling me about her sister uh, watching episode three for the first time with like her sister's kids. Um and then realizing that there was this moment where that young Padawan comes out and tries to attack. Uh, oh, the clone troopers when 66 order is being executed. Yeah. And that kid is killed. The first of many younglings to die. Right. In this movie. And well, it's the one youngling we, ne we actually see. Correct. Lose life on film. Correct. There's and I think it was George Lucas's son, wasn't it? I don't know. I feel like that's also like a really weird ripe tangent we could go on that I'm yeah. going to leave alone. Yeah. But the, the one point is that the first two movies were made for kids, for sure. Yes. Undoubtedly. But then you're watching the movie with kids, watching the third one in a franchise that was made for kids, and all of a sudden a kid is killed. That's fucking dark. I mean, she, like, Sarah's sister, like, looked at her kids like, oh, my God, it's too late to stop them from watching this. 
and all of a sudden this highly traumatic thing happens that's a little scarring. Um, it's it's wild. It's crazy. It's amazing. I, I mean, I I don't know how to feel about it because I feel I feel so vindicated that something real happened in those movies, but I also am horrified at how it happened. How do you feel? In Revenge of the Sith's defense, it's the one movie in the prequels that actually evoked some emotion out of me. For sure. Um, like, I feel almost without fail every time I've watched it, like I am bummed out afterwards. Yeah. And um, because it's sad. It's a sad movie. Um, and part of that's like, oh, you jerk George Lucas. Why'd you have to make like two and a half stinkers of a movie? And then like, this is the payoff I get. Like, I could have done that better. You know, yeah. every guitar player at a concert, like I could have played that better. <laughs> um but episode three, in all fairness, is, you know, there is more juice there. Yeah. And I can enjoy it for what it is. Here's a fun little anecdote. Um, <laughs> I am a fan of the Mars Volta's earlier work. And, yeah. I, and when their earlier work was a contemporary event, I was obsessive. And they have this, like, 30-minute long track at the end of the Francis the Mute album, and my buddy and I tried to sync that up with the final lightsaber battle between <laughs> Obi-Wan and Anakin Skywalker. Great idea. And, um, you know, I think we were like a flick of the cursor off because basically that song goes between these really intense, crazy parts to like, you know, mellow it out kind of dynamics. And the polarity, you know, was 90 degrees off between the action on screen <laughs> and the action on the record. So Whoa. anytime something crazy was going on on screen, it was like during this mellow part. And anytime something <laughs> crazy was going on the record, it was during like some, you know, cutscene dialogue or something in the movie. But like, you just got to get the timing right. But I'm, I think it might be worth trying to do that again. That's awesome. Um, I actually really, I haven't pursued it much as an artist, but... Um, one thing I think is kind of neat is like trying to sync up music to visual media and all of that. I remember there was this great band um, that uh, had an album or two out in like the mid 2000s called Brilliant Red Lights. And I remember syncing that up perfectly to the opening cinematic to Super Smash Brothers Melee on the GameCube. <laughs> and my buddies and I were like yoked, stoked and ready to play that game. Wow. We were also high as fuck. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like the classic example is like the the Pink Floyd, uh, Wizard of Oz, which I've done. Yeah, which worked pretty damn well. Oh, nice. Yeah, I still haven't done that, but I like to try to like. I mean, I, I don't do it that often, but like you know, every now and then I get a real wild hair. Yeah, I did that with uh, Chad Deal back in the day in San Diego. Okay. But let's be fair, Chad Deal did it, and I was there and saw it. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> it's yeah, all yeah. Chad. Yeah, um, prolific man. Yeah, great man. So, what's your thought on Jurassic World? Um, Jurassic World, I was entertained by. Um, I wasn't like blown away or like totally, you know, or anything like that. I enjoyed the first Jurassic Park movie. Like, I think that's great. Um, but like the two and three, you know, are just whatever to me. I remember seeing Jurassic Park three and remembering that being awfully bad at the time hmm. or thinking that was awfully bad at the time. But like, I'm not particularly impassioned to that movie or that movie franchise, I should say. I mean, I like the first one, but outside of that, it's just kind of whatever. I think Jurassic Park 4 was fun, but it wasn't the movie that I wanted to see. The movie I want to see in the Jurassic Park franchise will never be released because it's also one of those situations where it's like there's a lot of marketing behind this. We got to make this like a, a we got to make this movie appropriate for a very broad audience even though there's like a woman getting like attacked by pterodactyls and like ripped to shreds by that giant sea monster in number 4. Right. But I'll ask you a series of questions okay. right now. And I'm going to try to lead the horse to the water to drink a little bit. I'm so really excited. Okay. <laughs> so <clears throat> Jurassic Park 1 is arguably the greatest piece in the franchise. Yes? Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Okay, great. Do you recall who, and I'm not talking about Jeff Goldblum, but who is the other lead actor in that film? Uh, Sam Neill. Very good. <laughs> Sam Neill was also in a cult sci-fi horror movie. Event Horizon. Very good. <laughs> so what I would really love to see happen <laughs> with that franchise is a fusion of <laughs> Jurassic Park and, and the grim elements of Event Horizon. Wow. And unfortunately... <laughs> That's not what I expected. We'll never see a theatrical release of that film. We will not. But... One of the cool things about Jurassic Park, and they, 
touch on it a little bit. They put their toe in the water. Like they flirt with you at a bar over it a little bit and then kind of leave when you turn your head on it. Is that there's a lot of genetic experimentation, you know, experimenting with DNA and like, you know, new creature genesis and creation and all of that. And it's very alien-esque in it. You know, yeah. Alien 1 and 2 kind of ask about it. Yeah, yeah. And what I would love to see Jurassic Park do is, like, take the best elements of Alien 1 and 2 and kind of Event Horizon-ish a little bit as well. <laughs> Maybe more Event Horizon with just, like, the unflinching, you know. that's This is the movie to, like, make everything just, like, totally gory and messed wow. up and all of that. But you're experimenting with, you know, different kinds of dinosaurs in the lab. You know, you got this park. Or maybe it's like at some research facility that's in high orbit above who knows where. Or maybe it's like Camino in episode two where you're <laughs> like, you know, submerged in all of that. Which for the record is my favorite world in the prequel trilogy is Camino in episode two. Yeah. All about those research facilities. <laughs> um, but you're, you know, experimenting with stuff and then all of a sudden like these crazy dinosaurs break out and you've got, you know, m- uh malicious corporate interest, you know, kind of maintaining the status quo. And then you got to send in these ill-equipped people, but it's like the, you know, the crafty engineer that like is better than all the space Marines or something like that. And, you know, it's through the lens of like your alien franchise with like the unflinching and unapologetic gore of Event Horizon, but it's in the framework of the Jurassic Park story. That's nuts. That will never happen. (laughs) I agree. It will never happen. Um, But that's a great, you know, what could happen is... Do you like the concept? I love the concept. I, I would love to see a movie outside of the Jurassic Park franchise take that concept of like, because we Jurassic Park does not have a monopoly on like dinosaurs, you know, like let's, let's get another franchise that's maybe a little more available to do whatever the fuck they want and take and do it like have dino hatching thing in space where they all go like bonkers or and not even dinosaurs. Maybe they're like alien hybrids with some sort of like genetic material they found from ancient earth or something. And they're trying to like bring back some species, like something kind of similar, but make it its own thing and then do it in space. That's great. There's a couple of different ways you can take that. There's actually, um, there's two side notes that we can take that with. Um, one of which is this great, and it was actually a kind of like a kid's cartoon back in the eighties, but it was called Dino Riders. And it was about these two, rival spacefaring races which were you know good guys and bad guys and they get you know they're in some crazy space battle futuristic space battle get sucked through a time warp and land in prehistoric earth (laughs) and then they're fusing their space age technology with these dinosaurs and the tagline is harness the power of dinosaurs fuck yeah dude that's fucking rad and it's them basically going you know AT-ATs at each other with you know stegos and triceratops and rexes and all this all the good shit you know, and like the good guys, you know, communicate telepathically with the dinosaurs and the bad guys use these things called brain boxes and put them on their heads. And it's it's totally vicious. And let's make that movie. That sounds incredible. Let's a, take that cartoon and make a movie out of it. I mean, it's all there. It's really good. Let's crowdfund this shit right now. Dino Rider, the movie, guys. I've never seen the show, but I want it <laughs> right now dot com right now. <laughs> um, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I think that. So I'm, I'm going to disagree with you and say that. Jurassic Park 4 was actually exactly what I wanted to see. I wanted to see the park open. And as soon as I heard that that's what they were doing, this like well of excitement came up inside of me. It was like, that is what I want to see. You know, that's the story I want. Um, I, I did a whole episode of the podcast about the Jurassic Park franchise. I, I will defend Jurassic Park 3 to the death. I don't think it's a great movie, but I think it's fun. I, I love seeing Dr. Grant back. Um, I think that, I think that movie, like, nothing happens in that movie that upsets me, you know? Where in Jurassic Park 2, a lot of stuff happens that upsets me because I think it's dumb. But, uh, and, and as like a native San Diegan or just as like a... Oh, yeah, totally as a native San Diegan, I'm like, get the fuck out of my city, guys. <laughs> uh, a lot happens in that movie that doesn't need to happen or doesn't really add to the story. Uh, but Jurassic Park 3, there's no expectation with Jurassic Park 3, and it satisfies those expectations. You know what I mean? Well, it's like a post-prequel Jurassic Park of sorts. Yeah, totally. It's like how episode seven doesn't have to be the best thing in the world. It just has to exist. But Jurassic Park 4, uh, seeing Hammond's dream of an open park made manifest was really exciting to me. And 
they'd made so many cool choices with how they presented it very early on in the movie where like you're you're with the kids and they're going to the park and like their parents are having all this weird stuff which felt so Spiel, Spielbergian to me cuz sure. with Spielberg's movies there's always uh, with his early stuff there's always like a side plot that isn't necessarily going anywhere which I love cuz that's life you know uh, even in Jurassic Park 2, when you meet Malcolm's daughter, there's like three conversations going on at once, and it's really hard to follow, and I love it. I'm just like, this is great. I want to see movies where people are having more conversations at once. And that's how I felt at the beginning of Jurassic World. And then they get to the park, and I'm just waiting for the theme song. You know, I, I just want to hear the theme song more than anything. Um, I want to hear like, dun, 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 dun. I want to hear it. And then when they get into the hotel room and open the window and you see the park for the first time, that's when they play the music. And... I could, you could hear that the music was coming in the hotel room. I'm like, this is weird. Like they're building to their climax in a hotel room, but then he opens the window and you see the park, and that's the moment where this is Jurassic Park. Like it's real, you know, or Jurassic I, World. I mean, really exciting to me, and that's what I've wanted to see without even knowing it. What I've wanted to see since the first movie opened. It reminded me that when I first saw Jurassic Park. I'm like, I would love to see that as a working park. And j- just as someone who grew up in San Diego with SeaWorld and going to SeaWorld a lot, and you know, say what you will about SeaWorld, but as a kid, I didn't know like the moral dilemma and I really had a good time. Uh, I wanted Jurassic Park to be real. And then to see a movie that did it, it was so satisfying. Well, you know, I think I was just maybe having like a, a not so great week when I saw <laughs> Jurassic World. So um, yeah. like... Uh, I was actually traveling on the East Coast and it was like just unrelentingly humid. It was like 90 something mm-hmm. degrees and like my girlfriend and I didn't have like a very good Airbnb situation. And it was just like, you know, let's just get into a movie and like kind of survive this heat kind of thing. Wow. But um, outside, so, you know, everything kind of revolves around your other experiences that you're having at the time, right? Totally. Um, but I'll say some things about Jurassic World that worked for me. I appreciated its production aesthetic. You know, I love that atrium dome. Yeah. You know, that, that was perfect for me. Um, and when you talk about those kids opening up the hotel, it's very reminiscent to me and my own experience of being a kid mm. going to Vegas with my parents and like checking out like a Cirque du Soleil show and being in like just these plush arrangements and all of that, <laughs> you know, and that's like one of two times that I've ever been to Las Vegas and it's not like a destination high on my list, but watching Jurassic World, I'm like, oh, that was my experience with my parents in Vegas. Like, let's go to a buffet and watch this <laughs> show and, like, see dinosaurs. Yeah. Yeah, I felt like they captured the the family vacation idea really well, which we've all done. Uh, yes. But, but, so they, they placed this really absurd uh, theme park into a really sort of real experience, which grounded the whole thing. Um, and to ground a movie with giant dinosaurs is a feat. Yes, and that's what was great about the first one is it was grounded. Mm-hmm. Uh, it they made it feel real, and to me, that's some of the best science fiction is when you make it feel real. Sure, but I have to interject here though because I think one of the things that really kills grounding a movie within the framework of science fiction yeah. is, and I'm not the only person who's going to say this, but when you just have this CGI spam going on sure. to create these effects and create these creatures, you're losing a major analog element sure. and a major analog production element of making it real. What works for the first three Star, Star Wars movies and what works for the first Jurassic Park is that everything is physical. Yeah. You know, I mean, granted, you got to use some trickery, but those movies, more often than not, have less computer and visual effects than more. The same thing with the first three Lord of the Rings movies. I'm going to say that Fellowship is arguably the best. By far. And when you just look at the numbers, it has the least amount of crazy CGI wizardry. I yeah. haven't seen The Hobbits. I don't need to see you a don't. book that's turned into three <laughs> you don't movies. Need to see I have no interest in doing that. Yeah. Um, and Viggo Mortensen, you know, Aragorn, who's also a naturalist, much like myself. Yeah. You know, he says Fellowship's the best because everything gets way out of control with the computer. Yeah. You know, everything's going to shit outside of, um, what is it, Minas Tirith, like the capital city of Gondor. Yeah. And then, like, Pirates of the Caribbean saves the day. Right. Like, <laughs> sure, maybe that's what happens in the book, but the way it's executed on film is, like, kind of hocus-pocus nonsense. I agree. And that's, like, my big beef with, like, a movie like Jurassic World or anything that, like, kind of uses that as a production aesthetic. Yes, Jurassic World was better than its preceding sequels yeah. and is the closest thing that you'll get to rivaling rivaling the first one as an enjoyable movie. But it's so much CGI spam at the same time, yeah. and it just, why? There's nothing for it. Well, I think that we, 
the legacy of Star Wars Episode One is a uh, 15 years of CGI spam. I think it's getting better, and I think Jurassic World is the biggest sign that it's getting better. Uh, you mean because, CGI production, not the Phantom Menace? Uh, yeah, yeah. CGI, the fact that like we're just being spammed with too much CGI, yeah. right? Uh, because all of a sudden, filmmakers had this tool where they could do anything they wanted, and so they did. And what's what history is showing us is that when you allow filmmakers to do whatever they want, they stop to think about whether or not they should. You know, let's gold bloom out a little bit here. You know, right? Um, so. Jurassic World, while it is a CGI spectacle, the best scene in the whole movie was the Apatosaurus, which was the one uh, where that uh, animatronic dinosaur is dying and uh, Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard are, are watching it die. That scene was fucking amazing. Do you, do you remember what I'm talking about? Not specifically. I only saw it once, but I'd like to say something about Chris Pratt and Jurassic World. Okay. Okay. Well, let me let me uh, let me finish my thought about this uh, CG stuff first. They also used um, motion capture for the raptors, which adds a lot of realism. Like they're giving themselves limits to their CGI and saying, like, if we're going to use this much of it, let's try to ground it in some sort of reality because there is no reality. Like there is no right or wrong way to depict a raptor on screen. So when the raptors moved differently in this movie than the others because they based it off of human movements, humans acting as raptors. Uh, and then there were several moments where you had uh, like real onset dinosaurs. Um, not as many as the first movie, but, uh, but it was done in a way that was fantastic. Because when you look at Jurassic Park 2, the balance of CG to animatronic is actually pretty good, but the animatronics don't move very well. Uh, there's massive exceptions to this. The baby T-Rex being a massive exception where it moves incredibly well. But the Stegosaurus uh, looks really stiff. They actually replaced some of the Stegosauri with CG, like replaced some of the models because they didn't, didn't look great. Uh, I feel like now we're going to be entering into a revolution, a revolutionary phase of animatronics if Jurassic World is any indication because that was the best animatronic dinosaur I've ever seen uh, in Jurassic World. You know a Jurassic Park type of park I would like to see, hmm. you know, Jurassic World, the park, we're not talking about movies right now. Right. Let's just examine the park as, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. as a business and as an entertainment destination. It looks like an expensive place to go, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. You got, it's on an island. It's you got on an island, room. hotel. Yeah, exactly. Like, and you're, you know, there's got to be a markup like on food and concessions and all this stuff. And then not to mention like admission just into the park or certain types of shows and how they do it, whether there's like an all-encompassing ticket or just exhibit by exhibit kind of thing. Thousands of dollars. You it's, know? you know, a very upper class destination. For sure. So let's just say Jurassic World, the park is successful. But me and my man and my job, yeah. Like, <laughs> what about the blue collar, like everyday folk? Like, I right. want like one of them NASCAR smash 'em up kind of Jurassic parks. You know, like I want to see this. I want to <laughs> see like raptors killing each other and fucking and then killing <laughs> each, and then killing their corpses again. Oh my god! Like, I don't want some like you know liberal lamestream media Obama Jurassic World like. <laughs> They're going to take our guns away. Like, I want to go to them. Like, I want to see Gravedigger, you know, wow. go into a cage, you know, kind of thing with the T-Rex. Like, I want to see the white trash Jurassic World. I want to wow. see Larry like the Cable. Dirt. Like, I want to see Larry the Cable Guy doing a USO show at, like, you know, some fucking rednecky Jurassic oh World thing. Like, that's a sociological experiment. And that I want to see. my worst nightmare. This sounds terrible. It's awful. I never want to exist in it. But, you know, if you take the Jurassic World entertainment destination economic model and then extrapolate it across a spectrum of uh -huh. socio-political events. Wow. You know, particularly through an American lens, you're going to have some really trashy stuff. And if you make that technology available, you know, microphones, instruments, you know, those exist. Right. And any quote-unquote musician or, you know, anyone can produce music. And as a result, we have stuff all across the spectrum that we right. like and dislike. Right. What happens when the tools and technology of producing a <laughs> Jurassic World exists across the spectrum? Wow, that's a cool idea. That could be a great way for the franchise to go. And actually, uh, I've been listening to this podcast called uh, the Jurassic Park Podcast, and he was talking about where is the franchise going to go now that um, B.D. Wong's character... Um, Dr. Wu. Okay. He escapes in Jurassic World. He's the guy who's been creating all these hybrid dinosaurs and stuff. Oh, the guy from uh, SVU, right? Law and Order Special Victims Unit. Oh, is he on that show? I yeah, didn't know I think that. so. 
Yeah, he's the the only returning actor from Jurassic Park. He's the one who's like getting chastised by the owner a little bit in the lab, and yeah. and like that's like where that like understated power struggle dialogue goes yeah, on. Yeah, where like yeah. It's like the well, these are my hybrids. Well, I'm the owner, and you know, fuck yeah, you kind of thing. Totally. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that dude's on SVU. He's great. I mean, he's really good in these movies. I really love that he came back. Uh, but he escaped. So now we're thinking like maybe or this guy on the Jurassic Park podcast was uh, I think his name is Brad, the host. Uh, he was talking about maybe another company will get their hands on this guy who knows how to do this process. And then you'll have competing companies trying to make dinosaurs and maybe trying to militarize the dinosaurs like they were talking about in Jurassic World. And then uh, and then chaos ensues. Well, that's what I mean about that idea that I had about yeah. like, you know, your brutal alien event horizon-esque thing. Because yeah. one thing that we don't really touch on that much with the Jurassic Park world franchises is the political and corporate dystopia of corporate interest, which- right obviously is ruining lots of things. It's there, but it, it's it's definitely there. It's not like highlighted super strong, but it's it's been an undercurrent of all of the movies. Yes, and it's a major undercurrent of the Alien franchise as well. For sure. And those movies have their own successes and failures within that franchise, but I think you have this great uh, plot device and narrative device when you introduce, you know, dystopic corporate interest as you know, and dystopic political interest as an element of the storytelling. And I think that's relatively unexplored within Jurassic Park. And I think there's more to tap into there. For sure. But then you're making, you know, maybe a movie that's not necessarily marketed to kids as well. Yeah. I think they could find a way to pull it off. Um, yeah. I'm also, I'm an optimist, you know. Like, I'm a recovering pessimist. All right. We're going to pause right there. I'll bring you the rest of this conversation on next week's show. Uh, before I let you go, as promised... I want to play you guys a song. I just wrote this last night. It's been kicking around in my head for a while. I had the chorus melody and lyrics. I had the the verse melody, some of the lyrics. It's been kind of gesticulating inside of my head for months now. Uh, and last night, it finally just all came out in a rush. And I was able to sit down and play the song on the guitar for the first time. Um, which is the first step towards creating whatever synth pop masterpiece I'm going to come up with in the future. Uh, I'm really excited about this song. It's called Cosmic Child. It's a little bit different than anything that's on the sci-fi album so far. It's a cool story behind it. So I was getting my tattoo touched up earlier this year, uh, about six months ago. And I was having this great conversation with my tattoo artist, this cool guy named Jason. And he was he brought up this idea about uh, like before you're born, when you're still some sort of being of pure energy or whatever it is that animates our consciousness that exists before it goes into your body when you're born, that in this sort of ether space, you choose other creatures in this ether space that you want to spend your life with. So in essence, you're choosing your family, you're choosing your your soul, quote unquote, soulmate, whoever it is that you're going to spend time with as a corporeal being, you have the opportunity to pick as a sort of like floating uh, free form spirit in whatever space it is that that exists in. Uh, it's a cool idea. And what really shocked me is that this is something that my dad had told me about when I was a kid. I'd never heard anyone else say it before. Uh, but when I was a kid, I remember my dad telling me this and it really struck a chord with me because I had met some people early on in life where I felt like I had known them, you know, in a past life. Uh, so this idea resonated with me in the same way that reincarnation res resonated with me to sort of explain this feeling of why you know things before you know them or know someone before you know them. I remember meeting this girl, Yael, in college who became a really close friend of mine. We talked like within the first week of knowing each other about how we must have known each other in some other form, in some other life. And who knows what it is, you know, with all the complexities and the intricacies of the universe, uh, for me to say that I believe that that what I just described is true would be untrue. I mean, I don't believe that it's true. I do believe that there's something to it, but who knows what that means. You know, I, I've never really prescribed to any specific religious belief because I like to keep my mind open and uh, aware of the fact that I can't really possibly know. The only way to know what happens when you die is to die. And who knows when that happens, if you'll even consciously understand what's happening to you. Maybe you become some other sort of weird creature, some cosmic being, and you don't think of your life in the terms that you thought of it before. Maybe time ceases to have meaning. Uh, all these big ideas that I love to think about so much, I love to mull over. I tried to put that into some simple language and put it into this song, um, focusing on the idea of being some sort of cosmic creature 
and feeling this connection to another cosmic creature. In this case, it's maybe someone from like outside of our universe who's connecting with a creature on Earth uh, and trying to find this person that embodies the spirit that they're trying to connect with. So it's a, it's a really romantic song. It's kind of like the ultimate romantic song is, is, this, is this interesting like intergalactic traveler of some kind who feels this connection, this soulmate connection with a woman on Earth or a man on Earth or whoever, it doesn't matter who it is. Uh, and it isn't, it is not about someone specific. So I've written a love song about no one, which is kind of fun. It's just this creature knowing that it will find this person and weeding through all of the, the people on earth looking for this one specific person. So uh, I'm going to play this song for you. It's brand new, never been played before for anyone right now. I'm going to sit down with a guitar and play it for you guys for the podcast. And I really hope you enjoy it. Uh, before I do quick update on sci-fi on trial, we had the panel discussion, uh, a few about a week ago at this point, where we sat down and talked for three and a half hours, and it was awesome. It was everything I could have hoped for for this new podcast, the Sci-Fi on Trial podcast, where we talked about the Phantom Menace. I've also collected a ton of interviews from a bunch of different people, uh, and now I have five and a half hours of material to weed through and edit. I also have a theme song for the show that I need to record, so it's coming. Uh, it's it's well, way more work than I had anticipated, which is great because it's going to up the quality of the show, something I'm really putting a lot of time and effort into. Uh, but I, I can't guarantee when it will be out. Um, sometime. It'll be out sometime. I'm hoping to get it out the first episode within the next couple of weeks. But uh, I even hesitate to say that just because I don't want there to be a timeline so I can make sure it's right. Uh, once a podcast is rolling, it's a lot easier to do the editing and get it up that day. I mean, uh, case in point, I'm sitting here on Tuesday at 3.20 p.m., just finished recording with Asher, and this episode's going to come out tonight. Uh, Knock on wood. That's good. I have my guitar right next to me I can knock on. Uh, But for the first episode of a show, there's so much groundwork that needs to be put in. i got to set up the podcast feed. I have to set up the website, all this other kind of stuff. So it's going to take a little bit. I mean, realistically, I'll be happy if it comes out in a month. But it is coming, so never fear. It will come. Uh, you can follow Sci-Fi on Trial at Sci-Fi on Trial on Twitter. And I'll have a website. It, it is sci-fi on trial.com. It is not up yet, but it will be someday. So get ready for that awesome shit that's coming your way. Uh, all right, I'm going to stop babbling at you. Here it is, the premiere of my brand new song, Cosmic Child. I'm going to reset the mic here and, and play this for you. And I, I hope you enjoy. I was born inside a star on the outside of your cloud I see your face Through a thousand crowds I'll find you I'll comb through all the human race I know what I'm looking for Cause I found it and it's you I know what I'm looking for Cause I found it And it's you
miles between us A million ways to come back to me I know what I'm looking for Cause I found it And it's you I know what I'm looking for Cause I found it And it's you Yeah, I know what I'm looking for Cause I found it And it's you I know what I'm looking for it's you. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week.